Yes, it's episode 19 of the App Guy podcast. The App Guy podcast. I've got a great show lined up with Graham Lee this week. Straight from your host, Paul the App Guy. Yes, I'm Paul the App Guy. Sharing his app entrepreneur journey with you for your enjoyment. Graham Lee is going to be a great guest because he is the app developer behind Terry Pratchett's app, This World. The App Guy Podcast. So let's get into the show. And now, Paul the App Guy. Welcome to an episode of the App Guy Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Kemp. I'm the founder of OneMob, and I've got a great guest lined up today um, from the Big Nerd Ranch. His name is Graham Lee. And he's a software engineer and instructor at the Big Nerd Branch, which is very good because it comes on the back of a previous episode that we have in the series with Joe Conway, who's also at the Big Nerd Branch, very respected outfit there. Um, he lives in uh, Leamington Spa, and that's actually in the UK for all the, the people listening outside who don't know where that is. Uh, he blogs at, uh, well, he actually used to blog for many years at uh, a blog called I Am. Uh, G at blogspot.ae, but he more recently blogs at uh, uh, in another blog uh, which is uh, blog.securemacprogramming.com, and I'll put links to the show notes in uh, so you can find that. But certainly go and check out that blog. And so, Graham, it's wonderful that you've been able to join us on the App Guy podcast. Thanks very much for donating your time. And what I wanted to start off with is just if you can give an introduction to who you are and how you got into this space. Oh, sure. Well, uh, firstly, thanks for that great introduction. Um, my my route into uh, kind of you know, to writing apps and particularly uh, the iPhone is an interesting one and one that doesn't really fit the timescales provided. So I started out uh, learning Objective C on the Next, which you know makes me sound like uh, some ancient greybeard, but I actually started programming on the next in about 2000 is because um, the university where I was studying, uh, which was um, physics, not computer science, had uh, these these kind of old nexts kicking around in their undergraduate lab. And so I kind of you know, saw them, saw that they had this weird Objective-C programming environment, thought, well, you know, it would be kind of uh, fun to learn about that. And then actually at the time that I graduated, the uh, sysadmin of that lab uh, was leaving to go to France. So this job um, came up. And because I'd been you know, messing around with these computers for like four years, I knew the, their version of Unix. I knew Objective-C to some extent as well. So I managed to kind of uh, get that job. Spent a couple of years looking after Next and uh, Mac OS X systems and Solaris systems. Um, and then eventually got a job as a developer of a Mac OS X software product um, for a company called Sophos, who writes, uh, a, you know, it's an antivirus product. I was doing that um, for uh, a couple of years, and that's where my interest in uh, security came in and I wrote a book on security for Mac applications. Uh, but they went, you know, obviously when the iPhone came along, there was just uh, so many uh, new opportunities and you know, such exciting things that you could do with it. But uh, that's when I uh, made the very, very small switch from the Mac to the iPhone. Right. And what was the name of that book? 
that you wrote on security? It was called Professional Cocoa Application Security, which is a, a very exciting title. That's a great summary of what you were doing. And what was it like working on the next machine? The developers probably now are jump into Objective-C uh, without that experience. Was, was it necessary to have, have that working on one of those old machines? It was in many ways a kind of maybe even disappointingly similar experience. Uh, you, know, you had um, Project Builder, which was the forerunner to Xcode. And apart from the fact that it didn't support things like cross-compiling for the iPhone OS, and it um, you know, didn't have all of the kind of uh, code signing and provisioning and stuff that you've got to do on, a, on an iOS app, um, it did many of the same things. You know, it gave you groups of Objective-C files. It gave you ways to organize them into targets and to build those targets and to debug and so on. Um, and Interface Builder was already present. You know, there was a video from the um, kind of mid to late 1980s of Steve Jobs demoing uh, Next Step on, um, on YouTube. You can find this video. And he, uh, he does all of the things that we do now. You know, he takes his uh, view, drags like, buttons and labels uh, and things onto it, hooks them up. Uh, to some code and then runs it you know, in the um, in the interface simulator and you've got this this live app or a, you know this live app with no data in it anyway um, with absolutely no code and we're kind of to a large extent doing the same thing there's been a lot of uh, evolution particularly in the frameworks and some really uh, great advancements to the objective c language uh, like blocks and uh, a lot of the boilerplate has been removed but Fundamentally, we're not doing anything that, you know, if you took someone out of the 1980s who was an ex-programmer and stuck them in front of a Mac, they'd probably take uh, a little bit of time to get used to it, but they, they wouldn't have many problems. That's amazing, you know, like how far ahead of his time he was. And, and, mm. and also when you uh, go through Objective-C, you know, just how much influence is, you know, all these uh, NS strings and, and NS... Uh, references uh, back to next step so it must have been yeah. really exciting for you to get it land in that world uh, were you what attracted you to um, the apple uh, ecosystem was it the fact that you just had these necks lying around or was it was it something about those computers that really you fell in love with i think that you know at the time i was mostly interested in the the lower level stuff you know the the unix um, underpinnings so i was using uh, Next Step, Solaris, Mac OS X, Linux, and so on. Um, and Max had, well, the Objective-C language was uh, quite an alert. You know, I, it took me a long time to understand uh, object-oriented programming properly. Uh, my background was being taught languages uh, in universities like C and Pascal, which um, obviously aren't object-oriented. And just making that mind switch from like purely structured imperative programming to object-oriented programming took a long time. But I liked the kind of, you know, the, the symmetry, the way that you organize this stuff into uh, classes and then just like sent messages to them to, uh, to find out what, you know, to get them to do things or to find out what they were up to. Uh, but fundamentally, I was a Unix person. And at the time, Apple were really quite heavily promoting the Unix stuff in um in macOS 10 you know the all of the unix layer 
was open source. And at the time, they were even giving you like bootable CD distributions for free that would just like take you to a, a Unix command line. And so that was all uh, a lot of fun to play with. And Mac OS X was, was Unix for people for whom life's too short. You know, Linux has come on leaps and bounds, and like you know, you can download an Ubuntu CD, start it up, and like everything will just work. But back at back in those days, you know, you had to kind of spend a lot of time tweaking like your X11 configuration or your um, Ethernet configuration. And if what you wanted to actually do was to kind of to have fun with your computer and to get it to do stuff, then this was a bit of a roadblock and. Mac OS X was the Unix that didn't have that roadblock. You know, from your experience, there's people listening to this that perhaps they are trying to make a decision. Uh, they want to get into app development. Maybe they're at the early stages mm. of that. I mean, this is um, the App Guy podcast, so hopefully the majority of people listening are uh, thinking about apps, you know, for iOS. What would be your suggestion on anyone thinking about the language that they want to use to write iOS apps? So in my experience, um, the the cross-platform uh, things like you know I, I've used things like uh, Titanium and PhoneGap, and if you've got that kind of background in uh, knowing JavaScript, then they can certainly kind of get you somewhere a lot quicker than you know, learning a whole new language would. Um, but they don't necessarily kind of take you all the way. Often. The, the kind of feature parity between what you can do with the native frameworks and what you can do with the cross-platform tools, they are kind of catching up. And you know, I couldn't necessarily like think of a checklist of things that are only available uh, in one or the other. Um, and of course, like, Titanium does let you add these like, plugins to bridge to the native code. But if you're having to do that, then you've had to learn Objective-C and JavaScript and you know, maintain both of them in the same app. So you know, for me, it, just, uh, it makes a lot more sense to just build the app using the native tools and to then get kind of, you know, the best like, impedance match with the frameworks uh, and also to reduce that kind of uncanny valley thing where some of the cross-platform frameworks try to do something that makes sense. Um, on both platforms, but is slightly alien to both. Uh, you know, a great example would be that like um, Android has these kind of contextual menus that you get with a long press, um, and that's just not a thing that you have on an iOS app. So if you wanted to like, add a feature that was some kind of contextual feature using a cross-platform thing, you've either got to write it twice so that you get appropriate UI on each of the platforms or have something that's out of place on at least one of the two. So let's jump gears a little bit because also people listening mm. to this uh, will be in that position where they may be uh, working for uh, an organization, a company, and they probably want to do their own thing. They either want to get into freelance work, set up their own company. You've been there, you've done that. What was it like? Because you now have gone and, and you've got this position at the Big Nerd Ranch as a software engineer and instructor. Tell us about the two different worlds, you know, that, that world of, of um, doing your own thing and how it felt and now, you know, as an employee. Yeah, I'm one of those kind of people who has gone out to 
be an indie and just, you know, set up his own business and then kind of, uh, well, you, you could say that I've retreated from it and gone back to um, paid employment. What I found about working for myself was that the, the freedom you get is both liberating and kind of scary. Um, I started my self-employed journey as a, uh, as a consultant. Um, and, you know, if you find the right companies in London, particularly like the kind of uh, big banks and the like, you don't have to do much work a month to pay for the bills. But until you've got that work under your belt, it's a constant worry. You know, like, yeah, where is my rent coming from this month? Um, you know, it gives you a lot of opportunity to uh, to kind of study, to learn more, to um, you know, to not work and to like, take a break if you need to, and that's all great. But on the other hand, there's the the kind of more paperwork you have to do. This is going to be. Uh, perhaps a bit specific to the UK, but if you're um, paid a, a salary, then there's absolutely no government paperwork. Everything gets taken out of your uh, you know, of your wage packet, and so you just get the money left over without the tax and the uh, other contributions you have to make. As soon as you've got a company, you have to do all of that paperwork for yourself, all of that paperwork uh, for the company. Um, obviously, the app marketplace is international and so you know i've had i'd have clients from the united states or from the rest of europe and there would be different things i had to do to make sure that the invoices and the taxes and everything uh worked well across those things and you know what you know i'm uh i'm a programmer i like programming I, i like telling other people about programming and i like kind of interacting with that community and uh that's where the the training is really great I'm not really an administrator, but it's something that you have to do a certain amount of when you go out and uh, start your own business. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that. You know, I mean, I work for myself. I'm actually calling you from Dubai and I didn't have to uh, speak to any boss to come over here and spend a few months over here. You know, you, the freedom is, is exhilarating. But of course, I would love to go back to my old job just for a couple of months just to get, a, you know, like the regular salary and then come back and do this. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, I don't know whether uh, Joe spoke about this when you interviewed him, but um, Big Nerd Ranch has borrowed this idea from 37 Signals called uh, Results Only Working, where it, as long as you do what's expected of you every week, it doesn't really matter when you do it or you know, whether you go to the office or whether you do it from home, uh, which gives you, uh, you know, some level of that uh, freedom as well. Now, you know, I mean, that's pretty much critical for me because we've got uh, the headquarters is in Atlanta in the United States and there's a, a European office in Amsterdam. But I'm the only person in the UK. So I'm, you know, I'm definitely remote working and I'm definitely having to juggle time zones with people who are both ahead and behind me um, you know, in, the, in, in the time of day. And if I didn't have that kind of flexibility, then I'd have to like, probably start working at 8 a.m. to meet the Europeans and then stop working at about 9 p.m. when the uh, Americans clocked off. You know, it's interesting. First of all, you just mentioned 37 Signals, and I've read their book, uh, the book by the guy uh, Rework. And it's a very uh, yeah. good read. So anyone listening should definitely go out and read that or get it from Audible or something. 
Uh, the second thing is about remote working. And, you know, is it uh, something that you find that you work all these hours? Do you try and um, separate your work life and your, your home life? How do you uh, juggle the, the, the working from home? It, it definitely is hard. And you know, one thing that, uh, that I have found uh, both like when I'm remote working from a company and when I've been working for my, myself is that I can only really uh, go for like a couple of months without um, you know social uh, kind of human contact before it starts to uh, to actually depress me and to you know for, to make life very difficult so you have to uh, or at least I have to find a, a social group that's uh, that's engaging and you know I play a lot of music I play uh, violin and mostly kind of uh, English folk music so I go to like pub sessions I join bands I you know I play with other people um, and that kind of thing is critical for two reasons one is that it forces you to get up from your desk you know, you, you have this commitment that you're going to a practice at like 7 p.m you've got to do it uh you've got to stop working at that point and the other um reason for that is that it does get you out and uh talking to other people because like yeah you know, well yeah you know, I, I certainly enjoy kind of engaging with people on twitter or uh, app.net and you know talking in the company chat room that's not the same as like, actual face-to-face social interaction with people so those are both important i mean other than that my uh, my only kind of hard and fast rule is that I stop at some time on Friday afternoon and don't pick it up, anything back up until Monday. Like, you know, weekends are completely off limit. <laughs> and I, I wish I should take your advice. I've just put a, a midnight <laughs> call in on Friday. Uh, which, <laughs> yeah, I would not do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a couple of things I was thinking of as you were talking. One is that um, for anyone listening uh, and if, you know, into music, then we had recently... Uh, a professor of music innovation from uh, the University of Birmingham and his name was Andrew Dubber and that's a really interesting uh, episode to listen to but also I was thinking as well that you kind of reminded me that for people perhaps in employment wanting to be an indie app developer and getting excited by the freedoms of course running your own business doesn't give you 100% freedom because of all the paperwork you were talking about and all the commitments. And actually working for a really cool company that uh, does the uh, flexible working from home and you know the, the stuff that you were talking about from uh, the 37 Signals, that could be a choice for people as well. And it just reminded me to kind of mention that, that, that maybe something to think about other than running your own business that's not the be all and end all to get the freedoms that you want in life i agree with you completely i mean you know i i find it uh i actually find it kind of more liberating to be uh working uh for a a good company with a you know, with, with a culture that i agree with and i'm happy to uh, engage in than i do uh working for myself one obvious um situation that like, people get into when they're self-employed and I certainly did is going down the kind of contracting or agency route where you're um, at that point you're really just kind of outsourcing your boss to some client uh, and you know it's you you have the freedom to choose which clients you work for as long as you as long as there's enough work around uh, that you can exercise that freedom 
but then you are kind of committed to delivering the thing that they want um and it's you know it's a great way to you know to keep the money coming in um but if your goal is to become completely independent and to make your money uh from your apps you've really got to kind of time box that stuff and to not let it uh run away with you which is the mistake i made was that i had this idea uh for an app but i spent so much of my time doing like contract work that i just like didn't firstly didn't particularly have the kind of spare time or energy to dedicate to the thing that i was going to make um and secondly that uh didn't perceive that time spent on that app as being of the same value because it wasn't like it, you know instantly giving me an invoice that i could uh you know, like claim from someone so we've all missed the apps that then come onto the app store from another developer and are hugely successful. Tell us about that app that you were <laughs> thinking about. Was it a photo sharing app before the Instagram or, you know, what, what was oh, it? It was nothing so, uh, so grandiose. I don't think that I would have sold it to Facebook for billions of dollars, unfortunately. Uh, this, you know, it, as with many um, good ideas for apps, and I'm not particularly saying that this idea was good or bad, it was... Um, scratching my own itch and it was um so when you're playing in these kind of uh, folk music sessions there's there's like loads and loads of tunes hundreds of tunes possibly a couple of thousand um there's a website called the session.org which just lists like loads of uh, of tunes from the irish tradition english scottish and so on um and you can easily get into a rut of playing the same things every so often so my app idea was that you could uh, choose the tunes that you're interested in playing more and then it would um, suggest them to you when you're out and you could track which ones you had played recently, which ones had been played a lot and perhaps which ones you hadn't done uh, in a very recent time. So you could kind of you know cycle through them and uh, keep your entire repertoire active. That sounds quite interesting. <laughs> Uh, so, just before we move on, uh, you are into security, and I, I'm kind of interested in this subject as well. It's going a little bit off topic, you know, with app development, but security is obviously a real kind of thing at the moment. Uh, with last year, the revelations of the NSA and spying and and all these hacks, you know, the big hack that's kind of gone on in the US with all these credit cards, millions of credit cards getting stolen um, online from uh, Target. What are your thoughts on security now? Uh, should we be frightened and should we be thinking about security more? This is probably more f uh, for users of um, of the apps as, as well as developers. I, I think the, the one thing that's kind of safe for me to say is that we're, we're in a period where... Um, both the kind of rules in a you know a legal sense, but also in a moral sense, you know what society believes is appropriate, um, haven't caught up with the changes in technology. So you know if we look at, for example, the NSA uh, revelations, what we find is that yes, they are doing things that we weren't expecting, like you know tapping into um, phone companies or internet service providers and so on. But a lot of what they're doing is um you know is like looking at information that's publicly posted uh in you know um social media profiles uh, 
and uh, public websites and the, the like. Um, and so, there, you know, there is an extent to which our expectations of privacy haven't caught up with the things that we're trying to do, which is quite worrying in a way, because it means that um, the the way that we as developers try to uh, to kind of mitigate this damage and to protect ourselves through things like uh, you know privacy policies, through informed consent and the like. Well, perhaps people aren't as informed as we'd like to believe, because uh, you know saying we're going to share this with third parties doesn't fully explain the ramifications of that and you know the, the things that could possibly be done uh, with that information. Um, but you know, in order to have um, a robust system in place for uh, sharing or indeed you know, not sharing information and for being in control of that, um, the apps and the uh, you know, back-end services and the protocols and so on have to be uh, well-engineered such that any expected confidentiality is actually provided by the system and any uh, inspect, you know, any expected uh, tamper-proofing or in integrity can actually be uh, supplied. And we've seen with things like um, the Target breach you were talking about and the uh, Sony PlayStation Network a couple of years ago that you know, actually that, that robustness isn't universal yet. Should we be encrypting a lot of our stuff? Probably by default, really. Um, you know, there's, it's, it's easier to, to say, let's. You know, everything is encrypted, and all network traffic is encrypted, um, and therefore, like the the problems that exist with leaking data are either um, you know, accidental misunderstanding of how the the data is going to be used, or are um, coding errors than to say we'll just lock down specifically the things that we think of but actually it turns out the stuff we didn't think of was sensitive too i mean this is a a problem in general with uh, with designing any system is the idea of uh, of framing once you kind of say right, i am worried about the confidentiality of that thing you start to forget about or uh, ignore or just like fail to notice everything else that's going on because you're focusing on the, on, on this one part of the system, um, and so uh, any like uh, untoward events that could happen from the the rest of the data being public aren't going to be the things you're thinking of when you're securing that one little bit that you decided to focus on. It's just interesting times. I mean, should we be sending? are emails encrypted again yes because you send quite sensitive stuff over email so let's just say it should all be encrypted and then you know we we only have to worry about the slight like bandwidth overhead or computational overhead of doing that work rather than saying let's make it a, a ceremony you know as it currently is uh, you have to go through like getting an s-mime certificate or getting pgp uh, set up and then you know importing your uh, contacts keys into your keyring and all of this uh, nonsense um, and you know people get that wrong and so even well-intentioned people who are trying to send encrypted mail currently find it very hard to do so because of the uh, 
because of the complexity of doing it. There was a great um, paper, oh, it was, a, it was a long time ago, it might have even been the 1990s. Um, look for the phrase, why Johnny can't encrypt. Um, and that's the title of a paper that was looking into the PGP mail interface from like you know, a, a version that ran on Mac OS 8 or OS 9. So it's really quite old. Um, and they found that the, the UI of this thing was kind of well thought out and all of the buttons were clearly labeled. But because the problem itself was something that people didn't you know, know how to solve or uh, particularly kind of think about and you know, like public private key encryption is just not something that you come across in your day-to-day -day activities. It's still really hard to use, no matter how nice a UI you put on the top. Yeah, I was going to ask if there's any any resources uh, where people can go if they do uh, want to encrypt their emails or in, encrypt their uh, you know data flow from their iPhones and smartphones. There is a um, so there's a, a free version of uh, PGP which is called GPG, the GNU Privacy Guard. And that certainly exists on OS X Mail. And I think there is uh, a mail app that can use it on iOS as well. But you have to have you know, all, all of the people who, are, who you're going to uh, communicate uh, using encrypted mail have to have kind of opted into this thing. And you all have to have set up uh, your keys on your own systems before you can get that thing to work. There's no... Um, general way because of the way that uh, email works there's no uh, kind of general way to just get complete end-to-end -end, uh, encryption between any two unknown uh, um, emailers yes yeah that uh, i did have a, a look into this and um it was beyond me. Uh, not that that's uh, difficult to get beyond me, but uh, <laughs> trying to uh, understand um, PGB. There's there's a uh, there's a good actual podcast um, called Security Now, and I think last year there mm. was uh, some discussions on uh, which uh, emailers to use. But um, that let's move on because I could, I could talk all day about security. It's, it's something I listen to and something I'm interested in, um, especially when you submit an app. Uh, I think the App Store actually asks, is there any cryptography in your app? Um, you've got to hit yes or no. Um, I'm assuming that if you hit yes, it probably wouldn't let you to, uh, to, to submit your app. So I know that... You have to go through um, an extra step if you do that. Oh, right. Uh, this is a US government uh, restriction. Sometime back in the 90s, uh, the... I think it was under Clinton, the US government decided that um, encryption and indeed supercomputers were um, potential weapons of mass destruction. And so they uh, put strict limits on how they could be exported. And a lot of those limits have now been lifted, but you still have to register your, uh, if you're exporting something out of the United States that includes encryption as part of the product, uh, such as a, a, an app that uses encryption, then you have to uh, register it with um, the uh, Department for Industry, you know, some US government department. And so that's why Apple have that, uh, that particular 
uh, question in place. Well, thank you for clearing that up. I've always seen that and never tempted to uh, you know do anything about it other than just hit no. <laughs> so uh, that's interesting to know. We've had a really good chat. It's coming up to the half an hour mark. And is there any anything you feel that we've missed that the audience would be keen to learn from you? Uh, what, what do you feel like we've covered everything, Graham? Or is there anything you feel that we should sort of touch upon before we leave? I think I'm in the same boat as you. Though. Yeah, I, I could happily talk for hours about this stuff. Um, you know, something that's been uh, interesting me uh, lately is the idea of uh, test-driven development. Um, that where where you write tests um, that show what your software should do were you to write that particular functionality. And of course they fail because you haven't written that yet. And so then what you do is the, you know, the least effort required to get that test to pass. Um, and then you've got this kind of, this provable uh, increment in the app's functionality that shows that it works a little bit better than it did before. And then you know, you're free to kind of make whatever changes you want, which are uh, often called refactoring when you're changing the the layout or the, um, you know, the the design or the structure without actually changing the functionality. Um, because you know, I, I I've just found it kind of it increases my confidence to make um, big changes to the code that I'm working on because I can see whether it still does the same thing after I've made a change as it did before. I've got these these automated tests so that you know I and the other developers who I'm working with uh, can assess the health of the project, can see which bits of the application are being automatically tested and you know, whether they work or not, and they can also see what we've missed out. Um, so you know, I, I would certainly recommend to a a anyone who is uh, writing apps, whether it's kind of for yourself or as a contractor or as an employee, to at least be aware of uh, test-driven development or TDD and to, you know, to give it a try and to perhaps make it part of your arsenal. Yeah, now you teach that at the Big Nerd Ranch. And so yeah. people, I guess, can get in touch with yourself and uh, to, to understand how they can get onto uh, one of the courses that you run. Yeah, have you got a resource for us for how we can actually connect with you and, and, and learn about the stuff that you teach? Oh, so all of our teaching... Um, the, the syllabuses and the course schedules uh, can be found on the website at bignerdranch.com um, and I am teaching the uh, beginning iOS class in February I will just find the exact date for that um, that is in the Netherlands at our European ranch um, so hopefully this podcast goes out before then otherwise this is just a little bit of history for, <laughs> for the listeners that's uh what, what date was that so that's the 15th great. to the 21st of february is it 21st of february great okay i'll put that in the show notes as well um when's the, the next one um i believe i am then teaching the course again in april uh but if you look right, at okay. um, com, there's a complete schedule uh for all of our training in Europe and in two sites in the US as well. And I do like to ask this question to most guests. What, what phone do you carry? Ah, <laughs> uh, now, uh, my regular phone, the one that's in front of me that I was just checking the dates, uh, is an iPhone 5. Um, right, okay. I also have a Sony Xperia S because I do some Android development as well. And what's on your home screen of the iPhone? What great apps do you, could you 
suggest to anyone listening? So um, the one I was just using then, which is absolutely brilliant, is uh, Fantastical, which is by Flexibits. Um, and this is a, it's a calendar app that lets you write things in a kind of you know, natural language. Um, and so I can just say, uh, uh, interview with Paul on Skype at um, 8 p.m. And that will get, it will work out which bit is the time, which bit is uh, the contacts, which bit is the content, the location, and so on. And just automatically organize all of that stuff. And that's just so much easier than like you know going through the the UI of the calendar app and adding the uh, the details that way. I really that is the one app um, that probably saves me the most time on my phone. That app is called Fantastical. I'll put a link to the show notes. And how can people reach out to you, Graham? So what's the best way of getting in touch with you? Best way to find me is uh, on Twitter, where my um, handle is secboffin, which I suppose is a bit of a, a UK centric way to say security expert it's spelled s-e-c-b-o-f-f-i-n you know graham it's been very interesting thank you so much for your time to uh, join us on the app guy podcast i've thoroughly enjoyed it you know there's a load of questions clearly you're highly proficient in your subject field uh, very knowledgeable and i would love to have another chance to chat to you because there's so many more questions that we can go through uh, but for now graham it's it's been a pleasure and I really appreciate you joining me on the on the App Guy podcast. Thanks very much for having me on. I've really had a, a very good time on this interview. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode. The App Guy podcast goes out every Sunday and Thursdays. If you want to be a guest on the show or suggest someone, then please send an email to info at onemob.com.